0: (laughs) Practice (laughs) reading before you come up to the stand, and the ears of all the people who were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Madahiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashabah, Zachariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the word of the Lord.
1: the reading of the word there. It's great to be here this morning. My name is Silas. And yeah, as Alan's mentioned, I've been here a couple of times, but it's been a while since I've last been here. Um, It's always awesome coming down to Frio Church, and this congregation is uh, a wonderful group. since I was last here, uh, yeah, a few years ago now, a few things have happened in that time. We've had another child, so now we've got two little boys. We've got our big boy Oscar, and now we've got a new little baby named Ezra. So you can sort of see where I'm, where, why I might have landed on this, and. Um, Yeah, as we saw in our reading, there's a couple of good names to pick from, like Hashbaranah, but we've gone with Ezra and we're we're happy with our choice. Um, So I've really enjoyed preparing this message and learning more about Ezra. Um, The Ezra of the Old Testament, the famous scribe of the Old Testament. Now, this reading, this character, this story, it's all part of two books of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah. And these two books, they happen, uh, we find them in our Bible right after Chronicles, and they are two books with one story. One story that overlaps between both books, crosses over, and these two characters, Ezra and Nehemiah, also cross over in the book. Uh, this story within Ezra and Nehemiah, it has uh, it's full of historical events, it's full of historical letters, and it jumps forward and backward in time. But the most important thing that it contains is the story of the return of the people of Israel to their home from the exile. So, uh, before we get into the story, I just want to get you to think about two things. Knowledge and action, knowledge and action, or you could say what you know and what you do. Uh, And these two things, they have a bit of a classic history, they're connected, but there's also a little bit of a gap. So what I mean by this is uh, in our lives, we know things, but we don't always do things. So apart from preaching once every two years, um, the other thing I do with my life is I'm a physio, and I see a lot of examples of this, where we tell people what they uh, need to do to help recover and rehabilitate their injuries or their illnesses. They know what they're meant to do, but maybe you've been guilty of this yourself, they don't always do it. Um, You've got all sorts of examples like not following your um, the diet that you know is good for you, not um, doing the exercise, workout that you know is gonna change your life. Um, but there's also some more complex examples. Sometimes we find ourselves going into or falling back into toxic relationships that we know is not good for us. Or perhaps we find with our family, we don't always treat them or speak to them the way we know we ought to there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between what we know we should do and what we actually do. The story throughout Ezra and Nehemiah is teaching us about this tension between what we know and what we do, and in particular, about knowing God's law and living it out. And Ezra is our model. Okay, so I've already explained or mentioned that this story is about the people of Israel returning Home from exile. So let me give you a little bit more information about this story's broader historical context. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah follow the history of Israel through around 540 BC through to 460 BC, and we are right at the end of the Old Testament. We're at the end. So all those stories and characters that you know and love from the Bible, they've all been in God. We've had the Genesis, we've Noah, Abraham, we've had the exodus with Egypt returning and uh, leaving Egypt and returning to the promised land. We are past the high point of Israel with King David, the Temple of Solomon, we're past all of this. And we have seen the leaders and the people of Israel fail in following God's law and as part of their judgement they're handed over to the nations, the other nations. So we see this downward spiral throughout the books of Kings, the books of Chronicles, until we get to this point, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people of Israel to Babylon. This is a horrific exile. This exile not only resulted in loss of land, or uh, it didn't only result in torture and death, but it also resulted in a loss of culture, a loss of culture. And you can see the methods of the Babylonians in the book of Daniel, as they try to totally assimilate the, ba- the exiles of Israel into Babylonian culture. And the people of Israel kneeling face oblivion. And many other cultures and nations were um, did face oblivion during this time of the Babylonian rule. But a remnant remained, a remnant remained, and God had not forgotten his promise and he had not forgotten his people, despite them not following his law. So here we are in this story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're about 50 years after that destruction and after that exile, but something has changed in the Middle East. Babylon has fallen. Babylon falls to the Persian Empire, and we have a new superpower we've also got a new king, and his name is Cyrus. So my name's millions book too. <coughs> right at the beginning of the book of Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and his proclamation was to let the exiles return home. We had a brief exile in Australia a couple of years ago, didn't we, during the COVID pandemic. And um, if you were from somewhere else in the world or even another state, you were kind of stuck here. Uh, People were separated from family and friends. People missed weddings, births, and funerals. And it was a pretty hard time. So just imagine the magnitude of this exile and imagine the elation of being able to finally travel again and finally return home. But this 50 years was a fair bit longer than ours. And with this amount of time having passed, Jerusalem wasn't the same anymore, and neither were the people. See, the Israelites were home, but there was still a long way to go. So what do I mean by that? Well, they were back in the land after being away for so long, but after all this destruction had occurred, they had lost their buildings, They'd lost their literature, they had lost wealth, their culture, and almost completely their religion. They were almost completely dissolved. And what we see in this return to the land, uh, quite interestingly, is what the first thing they do. And the first thing they do is to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the temple. Now, you're thinking, if you're in a new city, surrounded by enemies, the first thing you're probably going to do is build some defences, but no, they build a temple because they knew the only way this was going to work is that God needs to be here. And as the nations gained resource as this nation gains resources and more people return to the land, then the city starts to be rebuilt and then a wall is built around Jerusalem. This is led by Nehemiah. Okay? Then we have Ezra, okay, the scribe, and this is who we're going to focus on today. So he is the one responsible for bringing the law of God back to the people of Israel. So we've got these three things, okay? The temple, the wall, and the law. Um, There's a few more things I I think it's important to know about Ezra at this point. So we've worked out he's a scribe, and he's skilled in the law of Moses. And he's preserved this word of the Lord all the way through the exile in Babylon. We get some information about him in the book of Ezra, throughout chapters 10 and 7. He's not just any old scribe. Um, no, he's actually got a lot of influence. See, he is a descendant from Aaron. Now, if you know your, your names in the Old Testament, Aaron is the chief priest from the time of the Exodus. And Aaron is Moses' brother. So, this guy has some pretty serious heritage. And you can read that genealogy in Ezra chapter 7. We also see in this chapter in verse 10 that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So he studied the law of the Lord and he did it. This is a guy who knows it and does it. Have you ever seen anyone in your life who is able to do this, who really, really knows it, and really, really does it. Um, I think you can often look to the sporting world to find people like this, people who know their game, know their sport, know their specialty so well, they also are dedicated and determined to push themselves to the limit of their abilities to achieve what they want to achieve. They know it, and they do it, and it's captivating. So, with all of that background story here, and now that we all know Ezra a little bit better, I don't know where he is, he must have gone out crying, we we can get into our passage today. So, let's look at our passage right from the start in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So the people gathered as one. This is already significant that they are gathered. This law of Moses is what God gave them to protect them and guide them through life and where they failed to follow it is the reason they were in exile in the first place. They hadn't heard it read out in its fullness like this for two generations They hadn't heard this sacred word foundational to their very relationship with God and blessing. And keep going. So in verse 2, we read: So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all people were attentive to the book of the law. This is an amazing scene to picture. So we're in around 450 BC, we're in the Middle East, in a city that is rebuilding, and today is a big day. This event, this reading, was not just a last-minute decision on a whim, this was planned it's happening on the first day of the seventh month right at the start of a big jewish festival the feast of booths and ezra didn't just put his hand or suggest i'll read a couple of verses of scripture no he's put forward and he is standing up on this wooden platform made for purpose he's probably in front of a pretty big crowd we know that the first are the first returners Came with about 50,000 Jews out of Babylon. So by now there's probably even more. This is kind of Optus Stadium size group of listeners here. And the reading's a long one, longer than this morning's. It went from more early morning until midday. But the people aren't complaining. No, they are attentive. Now let's take a look at exactly where we are. The first thing to notice is that we are not in the temple. We're not in the temple. We're on the streets, we're in the city. And what this means, it's not just going to be the men gathered as would have been in that time around the temple. No, we have women, we have youth, we have all ages, we have old people. This event was for everyone. Specifically, we are standing near the water gate Um, Now this is probably not just some arbitrary detail of some of the landmarks that this event happened to be near. Um, One thing we know about ancient history is that water is life. Water is life. And what Ezra is reading is living water for the people of God. So even the place he's standing near is significant in this scene. So let's look at how people respond. I'll skip verse 4, and we'll go down to verse 6. <clears throat> Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What a scene. Thousands of people, and everyone, men, women. As they are finally home and free from such a long and horrible exile. What a moment. Um, Don Carson, in his book For the Love of the World, writes Whether under the Old Covenant or the New, nothing is more important for the growth and maturation of God's people than a heart hungry to read and understand what God says, and people to make it plain. People to make it plain or understandable for all. Well, we actually can find this as well in this um, story. Right after our reading today in verse seven, you can find it in your Bibles, but I I will explain it. We have another list of names, just as difficult to pronounce. But these names are a list of Levites. Levites are those who served in the temple and maintained it, and they helped the people understand the law, while people remain in their places. They So what that means is, while this briefing happened, there was a group of leaders, these Levites, who were walking through the crowd and helping people understand. I sometimes think that would be a nice thing to have on a Sunday. Maybe one morning when Lee, Lee is up here preaching, you've got a couple of guys, Dave, Andy, Jeremy, Susie, people walking around, and just checking you guys and understanding exactly what Lee's talking about helping you out with any of the tricky bits, maybe maybe that'll be great today as well. Um, This passage here is a true high point in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we've got some hope around the restoration of Israel. Now, what's probably gonna happen to you after today, in a couple of weeks, is that you're gonna get a bit confused. You're gonna get a bit confused about which one was Ezra, and which one was Nehemiah, uh, who's the wall guy? Who's the law guy? Um, well, okay, it's, it is a bit tricky, but I did mention earlier, Nehemiah, he's the wall guy, okay? So he's the governor of the people, he's a strong leader, he fights to rebuild this wall around the city to protect the people. And obviously Ezra, he's the law guy. So why in your booklets do you read that the title of the sermon is Ezra's Wall? No, it's not a mistake, it's not a misprint don't worry. This is something else I'd like you to take away from this passage. Let me read to you a short excerpt from commentary on these books by Tremper Longman. Ezra Nehemiah is a book about the building of two walls. Most obviously, we recognise Nehemiah's wall, a wall that physically separates the people of God from their enemies. On the other hand, Ezra's wall, the law of God. Erected a spiritual boundary between Israel and all other people. A spiritual (coughs) boundary. What a cool thought. See, bringing the people back to the land was not enough. Building a temple was not enough. Building a wall around the city was not enough. They needed God's law. They needed God's word. So that God's people could be distinct from the nations, not just physically, but spiritually. Um, But yes, that will probably not help you uh, when you're trying to remember which one's the wall guy and which one's the law guy. So sorry about that. Um, But I guess the good news is you can say they're both both wall guys and you'll still be right. So all good. Um, In our passage today, we have this hope being raised for the kingdom of God. And we have a great model in the life of Ezra. His devotion to the word and dedication to God's word. Uh, And we see this incredible response from the people in this moment. But unfortunately, this is not a complete success story. Um, As per most of Israel's history, we end up with a bit of an anti-climax. As we go on in the book here, uh, we read that there is problem after problem with the new Israel. There's intermarriage with other cultures, which brings in other religions. There's failure to uphold this law. The temple is neglected. It's all too familiar, isn't it? There is still a gap between what these people know and what these people do. But God doesn't leave us in this anticlimax. Out of this remnant of these Jewish exiles comes the saviour of the world. 400 years later, 14 generations later, Christ is born. See, God always knew that the law wasn't enough, that we would always fall short, because he knows us, and he knows that we needed more than the law. He wants, as the prophet Jeremiah says, to put the law within his people, to write it on their hearts. So God enters the story himself as a man, the Word became flesh, to save Israel from their ongoing spiritual exile and to bring them home truly once and for all. This gap between Israel's knowledge and action is the reason there is a gap between Israel and God. And it's the same gap that we have because of our sin, because of our selfishness, but it's Christ who closes that gap. See, he lives the perfect life. So we are saved through not by what we have done, but by having faith in what he has done. See, while Ezra was great, Christ was perfect. And whilst Ezra was devoted to the law, Christ fulfilled it. Amen to that. Just think about your own life for a moment. Um, I suspect that you may have had your own climactic God moment where... You understand God, you understand his purpose for your life, and you feel inspired to live for him, to follow his ways and not your own, but then you fail, or perhaps something goes wrong and guilt and doubt takes over and you're frustrated by what you've done, and you know you're saved, but somehow you still feel this gap between what you know and what you do. Uh, we are like the people of Israel all these years later, and still even after we're saved, we still struggle. <clears throat> we still struggle with what we know and what we do. And in Paul's famous passage in Romans 7, we see his tussle between the flesh and the spirit. and one of my favorite verses, uh, Romans 7:19, "For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's so true." Um, I read a great book a few years ago, uh, titled, You Are What You Love. You are what you love. Great book. Thanks to the person who gave it to me. (laughs) It's written by James K. Smith, a Christian philosopher. And this book teaches us about the spiritual power of habit. So identifying this theme, you are what you love, rather than say, you are what you think, He helps readers see the connection between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And to bring about transformation in our lives, in our actions, in what we do, we need to know that our hearts are gonna be doing more than our heads. He calls our hearts an existential compass. Isn't Isn't that a great way to describe our hearts? An existential compass. And he identifies a really helpful illustration from the French writer, Antoine de saint Exupré to bring this home. And this illustration goes like this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, give orders. No, instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. How do we translate that? Teach Christians to yearn for God. Now one thing I'd like to point out about this quote is that these men still need to know how to build a boat otherwise they're going to be just sinking so they need someone to teach them they need to work on that trade but their yearning for the sea is what's going to be there to motivate them. Um, There's still some work for us to do in our life as we try and devote it to Christ and at the end of the day knowing God and following Christ is what we are made for. So our ultimate purpose and fulfilment is found when we know him and we live for him. Um, This is where I encourage you to think about your spiritual walls. The spiritual walls in your life. Walls there to protect you, to help you run the race, to help you stay devoted. Walls such as prayer, reading the word, being here in this building, in this church. Having fellowship and friendship with other believers, knowing your temptations and knowing what walls you need up in place to keep that at bay. But remember, we have Christ now helping us build these walls. <clears throat> so, to finish up here this morning, as we think about our own lives and what we know and what we do, um, you may be someone here today who. Uh, still actually doesn't know that much about God, about Jesus, Um, you're at a place where you're just trying to learn more, just trying to know more. Or perhaps you're someone who does have pretty good knowledge of their faith, and you have pretty good knowledge about Jesus, but you're still a little frustrated or a little um, devastated that there's still a gap between what you know and what you do, and you're just not seeing the transformation in your actions. Well, I encourage you, to keep learning more about Him, keep coming closer to Him, because it can be hard to love information, but it is possible to love a person, and that's what we have. We have a person in the life and death of Jesus Christ. So as we spend time getting to know Him, His words, what His death means for us, our desires to live out what we know will grow. So let's pray and thank the Lord for <clears throat> Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this example of his written scripture. Thank you that whilst there is still a gap between what we know and what we do, there is no gap with our relationship to you. We thank you for all you've done and that we can know you more. We pray that we love you more, and as this happens, we see transformation in our lives. Amen. Amen.